The wheel of time turns and ages come and pass, leaving memories that become legend. Legend fades to myth and even myth is long forgotten when the age that gave it birth comes again. Welcome to Through the Glass Columns, a Wheel of Time read-along podcast. Each week, we will be reading, discussing, and digesting a small selection from Robert Jordan's fantasy opus. This quest is led by Tyler, a true Wheel of Time warrior. I have all stories, ages that were and that will be. And I'll be joined by Greg, a complete novice to the Wheel of Time. The Wheel of Time and the Wheel of a Man's Life turn alike without pity or mercy. Join us each week as we read the Wheel of Time in our own sweet time, traveling deeper and deeper through the glass columns. But what does that even mean? No, 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 no. no. You don't get to find out yet. Ready. (laughs) Hello and welcome back to Through the Glass Columns, your weekly read-along Wheel of Time podcast. We are deep, deep into book one of Robert Jordan's Wheel of Time saga, the eye of the world today you are joining us to hear a discussion of chapter 40 the web titans and chapter 41 old friends and new threats uh i of course am greg who is knowing surprisingly more and more about this fine book series i think you passed the five percent mark ah yes and i am joined by that mysterious voice who is of course tyler our resident expert tyler how are you doing today I am doing very well. I have just gotten through grading some midterms, so everything Mm. is looking up in Tyler land. Uh, And in addition, we are reading probably my favorite of all of the Rand chapters in this book. So Mm. I am excited to get your thoughts on this. Uh, Any last kind of words before we dive into what I am very excited about and have been for weeks? I do. Uh, Guess what I have? Book two, look at that, show and tell on an audio podcast in our video (laughs) chat. Uh, My wonderful wife went on a business trip this week and she's in the book business. And so that involves going to lots of bookstores and having to make kind of courtesy purchases. So she brought this to me from Minneapolis. So I am all set to cruise into book two, The Great Hunt. Uh, And I'm bringing it up not just to brag, but to say, Hey, readers, hey, listeners, whatever you want to call yourselves, might be time to start putting in those orders because we're not all that far from the end or put it on your Christmas list, put it on your audible wish list, whatever method works for you, uh, because our plan might be to take a little break or to do a little TV show in between books, but we're going to keep going. We're going to keep rolling, as we said last week. Uh my plan is not to take any break, so buy the book right away. Um, although I will <laughs> note, uh, we have six weeks left. So if you are planning ahead, we have this week and then six additional after it. So feel free to start getting your lists together as seems appropriate. Um, the other thing I just need to say, Greg, I appreciate that your copy of this book also comes from where I do. Everything is coming back Minnesota. Uh. I appreciate it. Uh, <laughs> Initial but- impressions is just that it feels a little smaller. Right. It's it's a beautiful, crisp white color, but I think uh, like 200 pages shorter, maybe so uh, shorter season two. Uh, get, get ready for book four if we're weighing books. <laughs> um, why don't we actually just start then by diving into yet another ill-advised discussion of visual media on a non-visual podcast, which is a name I pretend is the same every time I say it. Uh, <laughs> this week, as mentioned last 
episode, we are going to be talking about a chapter icon that is actually not on either of the chapters that we are reading this week. We are instead going to go one chapter backwards and be looking at the chapter icon on chapter 39, The Lion of Andor. So I want to toss this to you, Greg. Tell me your thoughts. What are you thinking about it? And in particular, we have used the word heraldry in non-visual discussions over and over and over again, and we finally have some heraldic insignia. So I'm curious your take on this particular image uh i mean the lion of andor is what i call stellan skarsgård but uh i will also say um you know it was immediately obvious to me how familiar that lion should have been right and i am from the generation i'm just a little older than you so we didn't have star wars legos and mickey mouse legos we had the the themes that lego made up and that often involved knights with this little lion on them right because it's that kind of generic heraldic uh symbol that you know nobody owned so lego could print it up you know when there were knights and and like uh robin hood people and and it was all a little generic so uh so i will admit that i don't know a lot official about this uh symbol uh certainly the history of it i associate it with uh the british monarchy in particular which makes me suddenly very curious again on on perhaps some real world connections here uh it is notable that in the design, um, it is white on black, but we know from the one of the chapters today, it's usually white on red, um, right? Either white on red or gold on red, depending yeah. on the presentation. So um, again, you know, it's a it's a black and white book. Obviously, it's not yeah. they're not printing color on the interior of it. Um, I think the one other striking thing about it is. I would say it's got a little bit strange design on its, I guess, neck or mouth. I, I can interpret that a couple different ways. It could be kind of a weird closed mouth design. I'm leaning away from that one. I think it is an open mouth, but I agree. Yeah. It's a very weird depiction. The the open mouth makes me think about uh, Tigger when Tigger would go. Is it Tigger? No, I don't, I'm thinking of some cartoon. Maybe I'm thinking of Roger Rabbit, where he would like get the side of his mouth and like burr, 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 like. Uh, I think Tigger did something like that. that I don't know. Sounds right. Oh. Uh, so it kind of looks like that. So it's like an open mouth, but kind of a side mouth, and the very front of the mouth is almost closed or it has a tooth there. So I would say the mouth stands out as a weird feature, and then it's just it's a blazing white symbol we've seen before, white symbols mixed with lots of dark. This seems to have the absolute minimal amount of black on it just to make it as pure white as possible. Yeah, and I think the the light-dark dynamic is definitely something that we've kind of zeroed in on on a lot of these sigils we talked about especially with like the the white cloaks probably the only other example we've had so far of an image that regularly appears on someone's clothing it was white but kind of laced with lots of dark and so the fact that the lion of andor is more or less entirely light i think stands out and is is definitely worth noting the other thing just visually that jumps out at me about this icon is when i first look at it it almost reminds me of like a banner where the the square behind it kind of fits very much what I would expect if this was, you know, waving in the breeze above Andor. And yet, despite the fact that it's kind of designed, I think, to look very much like a banner, 
on all four sides, the lion actually goes beyond the borders of what would be the edge of the, the flag or what have you behind the image. And so I think it's interesting that it's kind of evoking something while at the same time breaking the rules of how that type of depiction would actually end up working. Um, all of that visually, though, is to kind of set up for the fact, what does this image represent? Andor, Elaine, Morgase. We've met all the characters, we've seen all the places, they may show up in different times in different locations, but if you see the lion at the beginning of a chapter, except, expect to meet a queen or a princess or to be in the kingdom of Andor. Um, any last thoughts on this image that jump out to you, Greg? Uh, no, I like what you just said about the the banner. Um, I have gotten horribly addicted to the new app, Marvel Snap. And I will say the first upgrade level is a frame break. So this has yep. had frame break on it. Uh, so they've leveled up their card from uh, a, a regular uh, Lion of Andor to a frame broken one. Um, very cool. I think we should just dive in. So we have two chapters that... Um, you know, we had warned in advance that this was kind of the longest we would want to go with having two chapters. But I will say what surprised me when reading, and this is just a general comment, they didn't feel long. I, I, it yeah. felt like it really flew by just with what was going on and kind of how tense everything was. So uh, these were pretty breezy for me. And so I, I think we should just dive right in. So hit me with your summary for chapter 40, The Web Titans. Uh, before I do, I just want to say two <laughs> things. One is that uh, while this is a light and breezy chapter to read, it is not going to be a light and breezy chapter to recap. Um, <laughs> and two, I actually have a little game that I am going to play with you oh, and no. our listeners. Uh, this is a two-part game. In the first part of the game, I am going to make the recap harder on myself by doing something, and I would like you to try to figure out what I am doing. And then two, we'll follow up with that with the second part of the game. It'll be fun, or it won't. I don't care. Okay. <laughs> We begin the chapter with Rand lying on the ground. He briefly hallucinates and has an image of himself at a table with Loghain and Moraine. And then as I noted it in my notes, because I am, you know, a child of the 90s, psych, he just has a concussion. Neither of them are really there. Um, he then wakes up and he is approached by a young woman and seemingly her brother, a few years older. Um, she initially is worried about him having fallen. Rand is immediately worried about where he is and whether or not he's trespassing or is going to get in some sort of trouble. But very quickly, it becomes apparent that Rand is injured. And so this girl approaches Rand and begins bandaging up his head, talking to him primarily about her mother. Um, it takes a little while, but it then becomes apparent that her mother is the queen of Andor. And so Rand is interacting with the princess and a prince. They uh, talk briefly about Loghain and what he saw, and then very quickly, their half-brother arrives. He's a bit older than both of them. He is described by Rand, a seemingly straight man, as the handsomest man he has ever seen, which I can relate to. I have seen those men as well. Um, <laughs> and he briefly questions Rand until Elaine basically kind of forces him out of the conversation, tells him to just go away. And as soon as he is out of sight, the two, the boy and the girl who were originally talking to Rand, the prince and princess, immediately are like, we need to get you out of here. That guy never lies. You're not supposed to be here. He's going to immediately tell someone. They keep Rand immediately starts trying to climb the wall. They're like, no, we can't have you go over there. There's a gate over here. They try to get to the gate, but unfortunately, 
unfortunately, they are cut off by a large number of guards led by a guard captain commander who initially looks like he's just going to shoot Rand, but eventually through some kind of negotiation with Elaine in a scene that I actually really enjoyed where they kind of are like testing their limits against each other. Eventually, it is decided that all of them are going to go before the queen and the queen can decide what is going to happen to them. So all of them make their way into the throne room. Rand is briefly prepared for what's about to come, but not very well at all. And then suddenly he is in front of the Queen of Andor. He bows in the same way as everyone else. And then we get a brief discussion between the Queen, her Aes Sedai advisor, Rand, and also the general of the kingdom. And this conversation, first off, is Rand just kind of explaining himself to the queen, trying to explain what's going on. And initially, it's everyone doubting his story, right? He says he's from the two rivers, and they say, you don't look anything like someone from the two rivers. The hair is wrong, the eyes are wrong, the skin is wrong. You don't look like someone from that region. And then it becomes clear that while the queen is interested in Rand, even more interested in him is the queen's Aes Sedai advisor. And she starts questioning Rand. She seems even more doubtful of Rand than Morgays is. And suddenly Morgays kind of turns on her Aes Sedai advisor and says, are you having a foretelling? And this is a word I don't think we've seen before, but one that probably should be in italics as we're reading it. And Elida then gives a foretelling of doom and gloom and horrible things to come for Andor. And then privately, whispering only to Rand, says that Rand is at the heart of all of the misery of the kingdom. Um, quickly soon after, Morgays, the queen, decides that Rand uh, should be allowed to leave, that he has not done anything wrong. And crucially, the queen has spent at least a little bit of time in the two rivers, and so she recognizes Rand's accent. And that's basically the only reason that he is able to get out. Um, Rand then makes his way towards the exit with the guard captain commander, the prince, and the princess. The princess basically says, like, wow, you're really wonderful. I think you're handsome. Peace. And then Rand asks the prince, why was everyone so surprised I'm from the two rivers? And the prince's response is, well, you're obviously an Aiel. And that is basically the moment that we leave the chapter on. Sorry, that was probably 10 minutes of me talking consecutively. Greg, say literally anything so the people don't have to keep listening to me describe this chapter. All I could think of, and apologies if this is in bad taste because the actor just died, but I was thinking of Hagrid saying, uh, you're a wizard, Harry. It's like, you're an Aiel rant. <laughs> um, I could just hear that in my head because it is kind of this big revelation that seems to have been what all of this was was building toward right yep. uh, across all this this section in this mystery and we really get uh this filling in and now i will admit that as a, a non-expert reader i was like oh yeah that's one of those things we've heard about before but it's like i didn't have yep. all of that at my fingertips to be like okay where were all those references along the way so yep. i'm sure you can fill us in a little bit on basically things we would know For sure. it, it's D, D again right where you're telling yep. us what our characters should know if we had been paying attention instead of drinking beer while you were were explaining some piece of lore yeah once every two weeks that sounds about right uh, <laughs> yeah. before we actually dive into okay. anything else though yeah let's play the game okay what was the challenge I gave myself in my description that made this a really hard recap? What was the game you were playing? Dead air is bad on podcasts. Um, I'm just going to tell you, unless you guess. <laughs> it felt like it 
first you were doing something with names, but then that, that fell apart. Correct. Okay. All I, right. I fucked up and said more. Or I screwed up and said oh. more gays. Sorry for the explicit <laughs> tag, everybody. Uh, oh, there but, it is. But yes, I was not saying names. Uh, so yeah, then okay. let's play the follow-up game. There are seven new named characters in this chapter. Mm-hmm. How many of them can Greg get? All right. Uh, come on, notes. Don't fail me now. We have Elaine, who is the, the princess. The princess, the daughter heir, yes. We have Gawain, who is the brother who appears initially. That is correct. And Gawain is so close to Gawain, I feel like that can't be a coincidence correct. at all. Uh, we have Galad, uh, which also sounds uh, vaguely English, right? Uh, yep. Yeah. Uh, we have, oh, here we're relying on my uh, handwriting, Talonvar? Talonvor, yes. Talonvor. All right. Yep. That's bad handwriting, but I was pretty I'll take Talonvor. it. Uh, Gareth Bryn, who gets a funny shout out in the next chapter. Uh, that is correct. To, uh, Elida. Elida is how I've been Elida. pronouncing it, but she hasn't shown up in the TV show, so I don't know for sure. Okay. And then uh, the one you gave away, Morgays. All seven. That's it. I'm done. Greg is awesome. You can pass this test if you had your notes in front of you. <laughs> I'm uh, retiring. This is it. I, like, I, <laughs> I've now learned enough. Like, goodbye. I, I'll pass this uh, book two on to whoever else you find to host this. Um, yes. Well, and, and it it is what you're you're exposing with your game is that, like, it should feel overwhelming because it's a lot of new characters yeah. And it's a big new piece of lore, for lack of a better term, like a new slice of this this world. And yet, I will just say, I did not ever feel completely overwhelmed. And I, I think probably a good chunk of that is that it's such a familiar structure, right? Like yeah. kind of classic queen advisor, or maybe I should say ruler, advisor, kids, guards like all of that is very easily mapped onto lots of other fantasy or obviously this thing called the real world right where so we're used to that kind of courting intrigue structure and it kind of all falls into place pretty easily yeah and i think for me all of the characters that we get introduced to in this chapter part of what makes them kind of not feel like it's just a pile of character after character after character. Part of it is what you're describing, which is that they kind of fit into roles that we already have kind of spaces for built into our head. But I think some of it too, is that these are all characters who Robert Jordan does a really good job of in one paragraph saying, this is the thing that you will remember about this character forever, right? Like Mm. Morgays, we get this like two or three paragraph description of her, but all I can ever remember when I think of Morgays is just like she is the most beautiful woman in the world. That is the phrase that comes up over and over and over again, right? When we think about like Galad, he's just handsome. He's just ridiculously, enormously handsome. And every character has one or two kind of, you know, easy things for you to pull out and remember. This is what I do when I'm trying to remember students' names in my classes. I'm like, okay, you got the weird glasses, so I'm going to (laughs) remember your name, right? I I do the same thing, I think, with these characters, and Jordan does a pretty good job of giving us some signposts to tack all of the names to. I I think that's nicely said and and apt as a part of this. Um, And, you know, I, I guess then my mind goes to, like, how 
much are we going to see these characters? Because it feels like, uh, I'm forgetting the word, what I'm struggling with is is Rand has now demonstrated his powers in warping the weaving. But he's a- uh, Taviran. A Taviran. And so you had pointed out like, yeah, this is what it looks like. You just stumble your way away from a beggar and you end up falling into- what and it's not like it's like something convenient it's like oh it's like you fall into the palace and you get to the very center of everything that's going on and so um i don't know i i think jordan is still leaving us to guess a little bit about the importance of all the boys but it seems like there's absolutely no doubt that ran is the one that really matters here where we have the answers here to his birth and we have him in front of the queen and we have all of that together um, and, and so it just, I don't know, I don't want to be overly dramatic, but it feels like this is kind of a fulcrum moment. It's like, yeah. there's no more boy from twin rivers, two rivers, sorry. Twin rivers is the casino here in Massachusetts. <laughs> uh, so there's no more boy from two rivers. Uh, there's, there's this, you know, hero, and we're going to start to fill in a very different picture of him, um, starting here. And, uh, you know, again, it was a long summary. No disrespect. I did get an email in the middle that distracted me. But I will say, um, in your summary, did you mention the the bit with the sword? Because that really stood out. Oh, to no, me. I had not. actually. OK. Yeah. All right. Good to know that I was at least paying half attention. So there's this weird moment, um, you know, when you usually turn to me and say, like, OK, what what's the moment that stood out to you? For me, it was the sword because that moment was really unexpected. And so I would characterize that moment as. Uh, they see his sword, they question its wrappings, and they question why he has the heron mark. But they then essentially read the sword and conclude like it belongs to him. And, you know, it really seems like the court members are afraid of it. Mm-hmm. And yet the the Aes Sedai, uh, uh, Elida, Elida, is not because she's comforted by it there and and this reading of it is like oh well it belongs to him like it's fine like it belongs there and it was really curious to me how easily that came and how that cut through the fear yeah and i think the reaction of all of the different characters to the the sword and particularly that it's a heron mark blade is really telling right because we see uh the Talonvor and all of his guards immediately like spring into action and you know get themselves between him and Morgays and him and Elaine are in, and are in complete protection mode and then we see like you said Elida just doesn't care right she's like okay I'm right next to you you're gonna ruin everything for Andor but I'm an Aes Sedai I don't have to worry about it um, Morgays kind of has the same reaction right she like raises an eyebrow and that's pretty much the full reaction for me it's Gareth who I think is the most interesting reaction um, for the record I've always pronounced it Gareth Bryan I'm sure Gareth Bryn is probably more accurate I'm happy to go with either um, <laughs> but Gareth One, he is the one who kind of looks Rand up and down and says, I think he's too young to have earned the Heron Mark sword, but it belongs with him, right? He's clearly reading something in the stance, the way he reads the sword. He knows that that sword kind of belongs to Rand and Rand is is comfortable with it. Um, But the other reaction that we get from Gareth Bryan is he kind of looks up Rand up and down and is like, oh, this, I don't think he's dangerous, but Brian still is the first to leap in between Morgays and Rand. And so to have a character who is both clearly understanding how inexperienced Rand probably is and cares about his queen enough to leap in front of her for seemingly nothing, 
I feel like that's an interesting reaction and all of the characters' reactions kind of tell us something about themselves and their relationship to the queen. It, yeah, and, and you mapped that out far better than my, my notes had. So that's really helpful uh, to hear of all that. And again, I, I keep in my head folding that into a moment with Gil in the next chapter, which is like clearly Gareth Bryn is well known and is respected and and understood, you know, uh, kind of like the hand of the the king in uh, yeah. in Game of Thrones or something like that, like the, a right hand man uh, type of figure. Um, oh, and so, oh yeah, go for it. Sorry, while we're there, I just also want to mention uh, as part of the conversation earlier in the chapter between uh, Elaine and. Gawain when they are just kind of talking about their mother one of the random things that they throw in that conversation is one of them just asks like yeah I wonder if Gareth Bryn is ever going to propose to our mother right so this is mm. clearly not just I see. that sort of like advisor guide relationship but I think even a few chapters ago when we learned Tom's um kind of relationship to the queen it was kind of hinted that gareth had relationship with the queen after tom so uh mm. there's kind of two things going on here as far as his reactions both as like the general and you know kind of head of her security but also potentially at least seemingly as as her lover well and uh Again, trying to map out more of that court intrigue, I think the other clear dynamic that we're supposed to take out of this is that there's just existing tension between the queen and the Aes Sedai, that there's there's daylight opening up in that relationship, which we'd previously yeah. been led to believe those are really close. And I think I was intrigued to try to figure out what's going on with Aleda. And I don't mean to keep referencing the next chapter, but yeah. but so much of when uh, Ran is, spoiler alert, reunited with Moraine, like so much of his reaction to Moraine is like, oh, she's so much better than Aleda. So, yeah. you know, again, kind of mapping this onto our previous knowledge, it feels like we're meant to read Aleda is corrupted in some way, um, feels a little worm tongue from Lord of the Rings, right? Like somebody who is is has the the ear of the monarch and is is manipulating them to their own ends to some degree um and in that moment where it's like do you have a foretelling i kind of called bs i won't swear because you already got us that one this week uh i uh i kind of called bs on um the foretelling like i don't think it's wrong but it felt like oh, I'm going to put on a little show to make sure the queen keeps me here in the center of that. And um, there's, you know, that, that's a very familiar type across all of literature. I will say in the new Star Wars High Republic books, there's a relationship very much like that. And it's like, oh, I have to keep proving my worth here. And if I manipulate to show I'm the only one with the answers, I get to stay here. And it felt a little like that. So I'm, I'm throwing up the wary eyes at Aleda in that interaction. Yeah, and I think the the interaction that we have, I think at the very beginning of the conversation, I'm trying to remember exactly where this is placed, but there's a moment where um, Morgaze is talking to Elaine, and she says something along the lines of, if I had it in my power, Logan wouldn't have even been in the city, much less close enough for you to see him. And mm. I think it's actually Elida who her response is like, well, you know, people needed to see that we defeated evil and they need to be able to associate that with Andor, right? So while it's clear that I think this Aes Sedai advisor, there's some tension there, there's some advice that's been taken recently that didn't turn out the way the queen really wanted. There's clearly like you're describing kind of, is there 
is trust being lost? Is something changing? But I think tied up in, in all of that is also the fact that it's very clear that this Aes Sedai advisor, while she's trying to prove her worth and playing things up and kind of highlighting her strengths, she's doing it from a position very clearly of wanting to position and or, you know, prominently for the future, or at least she has really strong reasons behind all of the things she's doing, right? Like, we are made to look like the most powerful nation on earth because Loghain was brought here makes sense as logic, even though you're correct. I think it also, you know, is something that the Aes Sedai suggested that is against what the Queen of Andor otherwise would have wanted. So it's an interesting bit of tension there. Um, but also tied in with this, I think it would be just irresponsible for us as a podcast to have something called a foretelling that is as mm. well written as Robert Jordan does it and not at least briefly discuss and analyze it. So why don't we just begin with the foretelling itself? Uh, this I foretell, Elida replied, and swear under the light that I can say no clearer. From this day, Andor marches towards pain and division. The shadow has yet to darken to its blackest, and I cannot see if the light will come after. Where the world has wept one tear, it will weep thousands. This I foretell. And then after a brief silence, she whispers for Rand only, this too I foretell. Pain and division come to the whole of the world, and this man stands at the heart of it. I obey the queen and speak it clearly. So we have, as you're saying, maybe for real, maybe a little bit of BS, but <laughs> we get a pretty strong statement from this Aes Sedai about what is coming and how Rand fits into it. So I'm curious what you took out of the foretelling, what you kind of thought of it broadly, or just in general, I think we're kind of talking about Elida and her reliability. So I, I guess I'm really just curious, how much of this do you buy and, and how did you take it? Uh, you know, in, despite what I said moments ago, I definitely just kind of felt like this is the truth. And it's because this is the culmination of so many other signs, right? Like everything we've seen about Rand thus far is that he's the chosen one of this story and it's going to, to really revolve around him. Um, so what stood out to me most then kind of automatically taking it as true. Well, and, and I'll, I'll say both the last piece and this piece reminds me um, this characterization of the Aes Sedai that they're doing the right things, but they're doing so for their own purpose. And when you were just describing yeah. Elida a little bit about her plans to move Loghain through the city, it's like, okay, she's doing the right thing, but she, her game is, is bigger. And, and for those reasons, and I think that's here too, right? That it is, true and it's the right thing and she's telling it to her queen for good reasons but i do still suspect there's a larger game at play that she's gonna dominate um you know or or work to her will perhaps is better than more than dominate so the the language there that kind of was most interesting to me is that rand is at the center of it very yeah. definitively not the cause of it and not the one who will be suffering right right just that we're about to hit this huge period of pain and suffering and he is at the center of it and so i think that is a clearly a deliberate choice i, I always hate when my students say that because it's like yeah nobody writes a book by accident right yeah all choices are <laughs> deliberate choices right yeah but it definitely feels to me like you keep that language there so that it's as wide open as possible, but also because I suspect that is going to be true, that he is not the one who will suffer the most. And it may be that his actions cause suffering, but he's not intentionally causing that suffering. He's just going to be at the heart of whatever actions are to come. And, uh, 
you know, that's obviously thrilling. And as you reminded me at the beginning of this, I'm 5% into this <laughs> series. So there's obviously like, you know, then my mind goes, okay, is this, this is a deep tease. This is, you know, this is where we fill in in book 13, what that actually means, or is it going to be, you know, 10, 11 books of suffering here on out and maybe a triumphant ending? Well, I don't have anything else to say about this foretelling without spoiling something 13 books in advance. Uh, so I think we've spent a lot of time discussing this chapter, talking about kind of the adults, right? We've talked about the Aes Sedai advisor, the queen, the general, the captain commander, and we kind of skipped over like the first half third of the chapter where we are in the, you know, um, garden that's the word i'm looking for where <laughs> we're in the garden and we have elaine and gawain and eventually galad and we introduce all of these new characters who we've kind of had a division so far in the book between the emmons fields kids and the adults we kind of get a few new additions into the kids group right or at least the approximately the same age as rand and the other boys group right so i was curious about your take on those three new younger characters that we've got was there anything about them that jumped out at you or is there one who you're like oh i really dug that character i'm just curious we had a bunch of new names thrown around what stuck out to you uh, I definitely like the daughter heir the most out of the the group. I think she's instantly likable. Um, what I particularly liked is that she um, seemed kind of bubbly and silly in a, a young way, not in any kind of mm -hmm. sexist way or anything like that. But yeah. uh, but then like is super insightful and smart. And so has the medical skills and has that training. But then she uh, later, it's part of a cover story, I think, where she says like, oh, I was talking to him so I could learn all about uh, yeah. uh, Two Rivers and kind of demonstrates how she's already memorized the imports, exports of the, the region and just now has in a little bit of talking to Rand understood kind of, taken her book smarts and made them street smarts and reinforced and adjusted her schema so that she knows exactly what's going on. So, uh, and then the final note with her is this kind of flirty, like you're super handsome, which, you know, is, is kind of thrilling. Like who doesn't like, yeah. like teenagers in love and, and such, but it's also just, uh, like, it's it's playful in a way that it's like oh she knows exactly what she's doing and yeah. um you know i think again the 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 princess is a, a a familiar trope in so many ways but this particular kind uh it's kind of there's in uh early american literature there's a, a book we we read a lot called the coquette and it's like the the woman who is like the life of the party, right? Mm -hmm. Like in particular, obviously the word coquette exists beyond that. Yeah. But it's like, you're so at the center of all this that you have the room watching you, but you're actually in control, right? It's not yeah. It's not any kind of uh, like male dominated space. It's actually the the female who's, who's owning the space and manipulating all those around her. And it just struck me that this character is that. And she, her, her savvy is playing on, um, all the people around her. I guess the only other thing on my mind as I stare at a giant Obi-Wan Kenobi on my wall is this is when when little Princess Leia was in, oh, sorry, it, spoilers for Kenobi. Uh, I got busted for spoiling something random recently. Anyway, so- Spoilers uh, for the first five minutes of Kenobi. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty early on. Um, but there was this theory floating around that young Princess Leia was kind of constantly using the force. And I don't think that's a terrible theory that like her force powers manifest as reading people 
and manipulating people, not really with a negative connotation, but I think it's, it, I think this is the same thing. Right. And, and she is somebody, she doesn't have a supernatural ability to manipulate people. She's just freaking good at politics. Right. Well, and that's what I really like about Elaine in this chapter is we get, I think like three or four different illustrations of the way that she is exceptionally competent at different things. Right. We see she is skilled at climbing trees healing small animals and the back of Ram's head, saving people from getting shot in the face by guards. Uh, She has like a weird political infight with the captain of the guards and wins for a while. And then she stands up to and possibly lies repeatedly to her mother, the queen of the most powerful nation in the world. Uh, This is a character who knows what she's doing and clearly is good at it. And I, I just always appreciate a character who shows up and it's just like, no, I got this and can handle everything that gets thrown at them. And I especially love it when it's a 16 year old girl doing it. Right. Like that just makes me smile that an author was like, yeah, she's just ready already. Um, Elaine, I think obviously stands out. Um, What about her brother and half brother? Anything jump out at you there? Um, I I noted when I said, uh, just uh, the naming, right? Some reminders that we do have names that are reminiscent of King Arthur's court figures. Yeah. Um, uh, Galahad, I guess, would become Gilad. Yeah. And uh, perhaps more direct is uh, Gawain becoming, well, and some people pronounce it Gawain in the yeah. spelling that is traditional. And then we have uh, Gawain here. So, um, you know, Gawain is always to me more interesting just the parts of arthurian uh, mythology i've read uh tend to be i've, I've read sir gowan a couple yeah. times i also saw the green knight last year which is awesome if people haven't good. seen that they should definitely go see that um and so it just makes me you know he's a he's a he's a lesser knight right i i, I yeah. think he's not lancelot he's not arthur right he's 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 a lesser knight and yet um that vibe comes through with this kid. There's also a way in which, um, you know, I I think most obviously the garden is just kind of Edenic paradise, yeah. and they're they're at the center of this, kind of protected from everything around them. Um, although I guess in that illusion, uh, Elaine has bit the apple because she certainly knows everything. That is correct, <laughs> um, and, and she's eaten from the tree of knowledge. Uh, but uh, I think so that iconography with his name just makes me think he's as a character at this point, I would suspect he's just still happy in the garden, right? He's not, he's not ready for the world yet. He's not supposed to be ready for the world yet. Although we do hear that he, and as we know from previous chapters, he will go be a, uh, a warder, right? So he will go train with the warders. I don't think he will actually become one necessarily, but yeah. And we learn across these two chapters that, um, when Loghain is shipped off to Tarvelon, then uh, that is the moment when Elaine will go to train with them. Will that Gowan be true? As well, yes. Okay, yeah. so it's both kids are headed out. And I mean, when you hear like, oh, all these new people you just met are headed out this way in roughly the same direction as all the characters we know already. Uh, yep. And hey, let's throw in the Trolloc, uh, or sorry, the Ogier. Uh, yeah. Let's just all, uh, you know, it's going to be a busy road to, from uh, Camelot up to Tarvelon. So uh, yeah, and, and you know, the other guy just felt like your classic kind of tool. Like, he's, yep. like, he's just, he follows the rules. He's lawful good in the most annoying particular way. 
Yeah, the super handsome guy who got straight A's in all the classes and was the star of the football team and got into Harvard. We all hate that guy. We've yeah, been there. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, anything else in this chapter? I think we've covered all of my major points, but was there anything else that jumped out at you? Uh, just anything you want to tell us about the eel? Eel. Anything you want to talk, remind us that we should know or yeah. not yet? I mean, this is this is the continuation of something we've kind of seen throughout a few scenes in the books, right? Tam fought in the Aiel War. We then got a little bit more detail about the Aiel War and kind of vaguely how it was somehow related to the Royal House of Andor. That was uh, Master Bunt, the farmer who wouldn't stop talking, who told us all about the previous generation of royals. And then Loyal assumed that Rand was an Aiel, and then Gawain assumes that Rand is an Aiel. So we don't have any information beyond that I can't give us too much but this is I think hint number four that this is something that's very important to Rand's past so we'll get there Rand still hasn't figured it out somehow well um, I'll just say it reminds me of Loki from Marvel not yeah. from actual Norse mythology well I guess it is from Norse mythology but whatever I only know it from Marvel which is yep. you know that that uh you know King uh Odin, God, Odin. I couldn't remember Thor's name, dad's name. Uh, Odin uh, takes mercy on the the child and adopts him, and so it seems like that type of scenario seems very likely to me. That Tam is fighting in the war. There's a child who needs protecting and brings him back. It is very interesting to me, um, not in a serious nature nurture way, but he clearly gets a pass in all this because he was raised in two rivers and all the markings of that being that childhood, his accent, his knowledge, his, you know, yeah. all that protects him. So uh, I think that's very curious and I'm, I'm interested to more learn, learn more about that, but I think it's time to go uh, hear about your summary of old friends and new threats. Well, Rand begins the chapter sprinting his way back to the Queen's Blessing, uh, and when he arrives, maybe my favorite weird non sequitur in this series happens, where all of the like big tough guys are petting cats outside of the building, because <laughs> apparently someone tried to steal all their cats. I don't know why that needed to be in there, but I loved it. Uh, <laughs> Rand uh, then finds Loyal and Master Gil. He basically tells them the entire story of what went on. Uh, the only things that he leaves out, it's stated in the book, are the second half of the foretelling from Elida, which was whispered only to him, and the fact that Gawain said that he was an Aiel. Um, everything else uh, gets talked about, and then shortly afterwards, Master Gil is like, look, I'm still going to try to get you guys out, but we need to move quickly. Elida is going to be able to search the entire city in a couple of days. We need to get you moving now. And then immediately after declaring that, there are white cloaks in the common room. So Master Gil has to go down. The white cloaks are looking for a boy from the two rivers. Obviously, everyone in the room assumes that they are talking about either Rand or Matt. And so Master Gil immediately basically starts threatening the white cloaks and telling them, yeah, you'll be able to burn down my inn, but not before the guys who are guarding the door beat up the five of you. And so the white cloaks cloaks run away. He's able to force them off. And now Master Gill is basically panicking, right? He originally thought he had two days to get them out before Elida found them. But now it seems like the white cloaks are looking specifically for Rand. So he probably has even less time than he think. And that's when another message comes through. Someone is in the kitchen asking specifically for Rand and Matt. I love that Master Gill is like, if you brought the daughter heir here, like, I'm just going to kill you. I know we're friends, but <laughs> I'm done. Um, and Rand, kind of 
as a rube, like he sometimes is, much like Matt, uh, immediately sprints into the kitchen. He lucks out. It's Moraine and Perrin and Nynaeve and everyone. They have a wonderful reunion. Um, and then they go up to see Matt. <laughs> and Matt is not great. Uh, we get Matt's uh, exorcist moment. He starts calling out Perrin and Nynaeve and Egwene and, you know, kind of highlighting the changes in them and almost mocking them for the way they've changed and how they've got, you know, what at least the spirit of the dagger thinks are darkness around them. Now, um, Nynaeve starts to work to try to heal Matt. It's clear that something is horribly wrong. But then as soon as Moraine enters the room, she is just like, no, everyone get away from Matt. Something is horribly wrong here. She explains that the evil of Shadar Lagoth infests basically anything that touches or takes even a rock from the city. And that not only is this what has been causing the issue with Matt, but we learn two additional things. One is that evil creatures, both dark spawn and potentially dark friends, are kind of inadvertently drawn to the dagger. So the horrible, awful couple weeks that Matt and Rand had on the road is not entirely coincidence, and in fact, not even entirely Tavirin. There's something going on with the dagger. And the other thing that we learn is that if Matt were to continue untreated, he would potentially infect anyone around him, and the longer he's with the dagger, the more infectious he gets. Um, so he maybe almost ruined everything forever. But luckily, Moraine is going to attempt to heal him, and we are basically left at the end of the chapter hoping that she is going to be successful. So this is another one of those chapters, from my mind, where I see kind of the pieces moving around. It's a little more kind of plot than character, but it's also the big reunion. So I'm curious what jumped out at you and if there were any scenes other than just, hey, everyone's back in the same room that really drew you to this chapter. Uh, so I don't want to lose sight of the fact that it's kind of surprising, right? Um, I, again, I think when the fellowship broke up, I really equated that to Lord of the Rings and expected a book or two to pass before we got some of them together, if ever all of them. And, yeah. you know, pretty easily, all things considered, they all come back together. Um, I guess Matt would be the, well, except we still have Tom missing. I should yeah. remember Tom. Um, and Matt would be the worst for wear out of all of them. And though Perrin is changed, though there are other changes, um, it really seems like we're really only worried about Matt as we we look forward. So, so all of that is surprising. Um, and I will say when I you know, saw it coming a little bit, but you know, I, even when the rest were reunited, I wasn't positive they'd get back to Rand and Matt. Um, I think then it really amped up my expectations for the end of this book. Cause I, yeah. I, I don't think there's a battle coming. It just doesn't feel like that kind of book to me, but I think there's something coming. And the fact that you get them all back together. And as I alluded to moments ago, coinciding with the rest of this path, which does include Loghain, who's a, a big evil dude. Uh, so um, to kind of see all this come together is is exciting and maybe, you know, again, if I were reading this not to do with the podcast, I probably would have just cruised through the last 150 pages, 200 pages, uh, uh, you know, this weekend when I didn't want to be grading. Uh, and then to your point, I don't have a lot of like, huge moments that I, I liked, but I have a few small details I'd like to, yeah. to kind of plug or plumb your mind on. Um, and, and so maybe to take them roughly chronologically, like it did seem like the white, the, 
it did seem like Aleda acted very fast, right? The fact that the white cloaks are already there. Uh, whoop, what'd I do? Continue. I, oh. I'll correct you in a second. Oh, no. Uh, the, the reason, the way they got them all, they got them hunting for the inns at, at that quickly. I think, I think Rand had dropped the name of the inn at some point. Or that he was at an inn. Yeah, so Rand actually lied about which inn he was at to a Okay, that's right. And so the fact that they were already out hunting and they had a description of the two boys and they would they were going, that to me was like, okay, there's there's a lot happening here fast. And that obviously Gil's emotion at those revelations reinforced that. Uh, I think I could be wrong about this. This is something that I am assuming that is not necessarily true. I think you have fallen for the same misunderstanding that Rand has. Mm, because okay. the white cloaks do not show up asking for Rand or Matt or for a man who was recently at the palace. They come looking for a boy from the two rivers. It's mm. actually my assumption, and I could be wrong about this, that they're looking for parents that he killed hmm. some white cloaks out oh, in the okay. grass, and now they know that there is someone from the two rivers. This is the only place they could run to. I actually think these two things are completely unrelated. I could be wrong about <laughs> that. There could be some connection, but I was willing to jump down the dramatic irony path and say Rand thinks they're talking about him, but they're not. Okay. I like that a lot and uh, totally fits with, like you said, the fact that their camp just got blown apart and, you know, a messenger from that camp making it in and, and alerting the rest uh, certainly makes sense there. Um, and, and I think the lesson still remains that just like, yeah. I, I don't know. I was thinking when I was writing my notes, I'm like, whatever you do on the podcast, don't say powder keg. You've talked too much about powder <laughs> kegs, but it does feel like that's the same tension that's in each of these locations and it's getting stronger and stronger. So I guess it's a continent sized powder keg, just, just ready to burst. Um, so my next note, and, and again, this, this one, I, I think I alluded to already, which is um, Moraine is friendly with Gil, uh, not in a, like, we know each other already, but like, Hey, yeah. let's like, you're good people. We'll figure this out. We'll work it out. It's kind of generous. The rats become oddly central to their discussion. It's like, yep, we'll take care of that for you. Don't worry about it. Um, having to do mean, with the cats. <laughs> I mean, we've literally just had a scene in which the four tufts of the inn were beat up over some cats. So you will never <laughs> need them again. Sounds like a pretty good plan as far as Master Gil is concerned. <laughs> uh and then Rand's description is just how much uh Moraine is different than Aleda. So I think that um while we have understood there to be factions within the Aes Sedai, I don't believe we're supposed to think those two are from a different faction, yet we see a very different read on them, which makes me think they are very different characters and have different motives. Yeah, and that moment where Rand compares Moraine to Elida is actually something that jumped out at me also, because Rand, we've been in his head pretty much the entire book, all at least all of the time that he's been with Moraine, and while there were a few moments where clearly he was like afraid of something she was threatening, or he was worried about the way she'd react to something, we've kind of read Rand so far as being the character most willing to go along with her, right? Um, maybe Egwene being the exception to that, right? Egwene pretty much buys in right away when she hears she can channel, but Perrin is still very reticent about the one power. Matt is outright hostile with the dagger and was pretty you know, skeptical about it without. And Nynaeve thinks the only good thing about Aes Sedai is that they can teach her how to defeat Moraine. So 
the fact that Rand, probably the person other than Egwene who is most enthusiastic about Moraine, has met one other Aes Sedai and is now like, oh my god, all Aes Sedai are worse than this woman, I think tells you something about what his reaction to Elida was, right? He's never been all in on this this woman even mm. though moraine has been someone he like kind of vaguely trusts and so the fact that a he considers elida so much worse despite just having one conversation with her and b he immediately questions are all eyes to die as bad as this new one i just met including moraine i think that just tells you how kind of on edge and how tense he is after that most recent encounter right he's reacting to moraine very differently than the way he did even 10 chapters ago well, and I, I think the only other piece I'd put into that puzzle you were just laying out is, again, literally everybody in this world has told him, like, don't trust them. So yeah. so maybe some of that message finally got through and that's, you know, um, but, you know, to Viren, uh, it's like, oh, well, he's got he must have a good gut, right? Like he's got yeah. the, those instincts for him. Um, my one final kind of little moment note is uh, my, my notes literally say Matt is gross. And that's what you refer to as his like exorcist moment, which yeah. I think is a good comparison. But one of the things he asks about him in that is Egwene's dreams. And, and that stood out to me because dreams have been so central and all three boys know that they're all suffering or having similar dreams and and that Beazelmon is is a part of that. So as the darkness is taking over Matt, is he able to kind of use that tool, assuming she has the dreams too? Um, does that mean Egwene's having those dreams? I don't think we've had confirmation of that previously. And you say yeah. the show kind of makes her makes it a question of the four of them instead of the three of them. Correct. So I wonder how much that's at play here. Yeah, and I think what's interesting about Matt's kind of evil monologue, if you will, is just how quickly he picks up on all of these subtle changes in the other characters around him, right? We've kind of repeatedly thought of Matt, you know, I think the word rube has probably been used as often as any other descriptor of that character on the show so far, and it's because it's been apt. And so the fact that we get three characters who Matt hasn't seen in probably approximately a month-ish, and they walk in and he immediately is like, Perrin, your eyes are crazy. You've changed a lot. And then says, oh, Nynaeve and Egwene, you are now wanting to achieve the same goal. Isn't it so weird that that's not mm. something you wanted before? And then he drops this reference to Egwene's dreams, right? And so there's something weird going on here with Matt and this dagger. It's both making him kind of pick up on what's going on with each of these characters and kind of figure out where is the spot I can needle them that will matter. But it also seems like he's just, if not figuring things out that he wouldn't otherwise know, at least like inferring a lot of information that he hasn't been told about what's changed in the past month. And I think it's it's interesting to see that out of a character who that has not been the way we would have described them as super observant up until this point. I, I There's a technology metaphor I'm not smart enough for there, but it is something about, you know, it, it's actually making me think of like Daredevil. Like mm -hmm. this dagger is flashing out so much evil vibes. It's like, that's letting him read the surroundings of him a little better, right? He's getting uh, the yeah. contours of these people much better. Um, and I, I think my last thought, and then I'll, I'll hear certainly what you're interested in the chapter two is just the way in which that is all happening. And then Moraine is deeply shaken by this yeah. in a way I don't think we've seen. Um, I think 
that to me made me think like, you know, I've, I've kind of been joking all along, you know, it felt a little golemy or, or, you know, something yeah. that he's going dark, but instead of just being grumpy, like this is a really serious problem. Um, and part of that is she's like, well, now you've brought a war here. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and it's like, it's all going to happen. And then they're like, unless, and I was like, well, clearly the, the unless is going to happen, right? Like, I don't right. think we're going to have the, the giant war of Camelin close out this book. I think they're going to sneak out and, and we'll hit the road and whatever happens at the climax will come down that road. So what am I missing? What do you want to talk about? Uh, shockingly, I had four things in my notes and I think you hit three of them. So we are definitely overlapping kind of mind meld. Um, before we move on to the last thing that I have in my notes, which is directly related to what you just talked about, but I want to kind of get a little more in depth is I just want to keep with, with this Matt discussion. This is a scene that has always struck me as being really effective at showing kind of how far gone Matt is and raising the tension in a way that we really hadn't when it was just Rand observing Matt. But it's also every time I read this chapter, it feels just a little too kind of curveball out of the blue. Matt went from being kind of grumpy to exploiting the weaknesses of his former best friends in an eight hour period. And I will say that's just one thing in this scene that has always kind of, it's it, it's needled me a little bit. It does, doesn't feel like the development of Matt's condition was earned, right? He basically goes from being grumpy and having the flu to I am going to tear apart all of my friends with weaknesses they didn't even know they had. And that's a, a pretty big leap. Yeah, I think that, that makes sense to me that it is a, a big jump. I think where my mind went and not saying this is a plausible explanation, but where my mind went is just that he's wallowed in it, right? Like it's been 48, 72 hours of him. No, I'm not leaving the room. No, I'm not going to go talk to loyal. No, I'm not going out into the city. And so it's like, um, I think that could escalate it exponentially kind of just sitting in the room by himself. So maybe that's the best explanation I have, even though it's not ultimately that satisfying. Yeah, I think the other thing that I want to tie in here, and part of why I kind of wanted to make sure we had this deeper discussion, is to also just be thinking while we're, you know, kind of analyzing the effect of the dagger on Matt and thinking about how quickly is it going, what's causing it to progress, all of these sorts of things, is also just to kind of like take a minute and think back to the original lore that we got about Shadar Lagoth, the city where the dagger came from, right? Because the story we were told is basically this is a city whose hatred for the darkness was so strong that it consumed the city, right? Uh, and we've gotten kind of hints throughout that discussion that not only is there this intense hatred for, you know, evil and the darkness, but there's also something tied up in that with a disdain for Aes Sedai and the power, right? And so there's also potentially something to be considering with how Matt's acting and who he's lashing out at, given that the people, the person who he was primarily with before, Rand, didn't have much of a connection to all of the things that Shadar Lagoth hated. As soon as I Sedai start showing up or people with ancient mm. powers of wolves start showing up, Matt's demeanor changes. So I think there's a little bit of the kind of how much is the infection progressing, but there's also something to be asking about what are the things that are causing his condition to get worse? And are they in some way tied up with this kind of Shadar Lagoth dagger and where it comes from? Um, 
The other thing that jumped out to me, and this is just a super quick thing, and then I can let you respond to everything I'm saying, <laughs> is there is a moment in this section where Moraine is like, how did he get this dagger? I asked you if you took anything. And Rand says like, well, he took it. It wasn't given to him. That's what you asked. I didn't know until we were separated. And for the first time in the history of Moraine, she doesn't yell or like get angry about something. She's just like, yeah, that makes sense. And that was another <laughs> moment that struck me as just like slightly out of character, right? That's, hmm. a, that's a character who has never given anyone the benefit of the doubt in the 600 pages we've seen her so far. And yet she immediately does it for Rand here. Yeah, that's a really interesting set of questions, but I think I can answer both. Well, sorry, and they weren't questions, they were observations, but I think I can speak to both by saying, I think what all of that made me think about is that um, I don't think there's like a consciousness to the light and the dark, but that there are kind of these two sides working this out. And the dark hates the light, the light hates the dark. I think both sides want Rand, right? And so where you're pointing out that Matt is particularly nasty to the the light, I think to the figures of the light, I think it's like, yeah, because he didn't want to lose out on the opportunity to have Rand and, and pull Rand into the dark. And then uh, similarly, Moraine's like, oh, right. Like, you know, she gets frustrated with these kids, but you know, what he says is pretty logical. I think she could read that he's telling the truth and doesn't want to alienate him or separate in that relationship. So uh, those are, would be my two reactions. And I think that perfectly explains everything and there's no need to discuss the rest of the books. We've Oof, I am on fire tonight, man. Excellent I, work. I keep doing my victory dance that again would be fantastic if this were a visual show, but it is, it is not alas. It would not uh, be fantastic if this was a visual show. <laughs> uh, I have one last thing I wanted to talk about. And while you're going to avoid using the word, I am definitely going to use it. I want to talk about what a powder keg Camelin is at this point. <laughs> um, in particular, um, there's a moment towards the end of the chapter where Rand is kind of describing all of the horrible things that have been happening to them, talking about you know how dangerous it was. I think this is shortly after Moraine reveals the dagger has been drawing the dart to them. Um, and he's like, yeah, and I even heard there are, you know, maybe some shapes outside of Camelin. We thought they might be Trollocs. And Land's response is like, oh, yeah, they're definitely Trollocs, like 20,000 of them. Yeah. Right? And that is, I think, a dramatic shift in the way that we have thought about the direction of the story, right? Up until this point, even in the previous chapter, our assumption was everyone's headed north. These characters are just going to make their way north also. And now suddenly we feel very boxed into this city that literally has a wall around it. So I'm, I, we already, you talked about this a little bit, kind of your prediction, this isn't going to be a powder keg that explodes. They're either going to find a way out or something else is going to happen. But I'm curious about your thought on the fact that, as you kind of mentioned earlier, this is like powder keg number six, right? Uh, so are you at this point kind of feeling like we are getting into a pattern that's developing into a rut? Or do you feel like each of these is unique and distinct and we're kind of building up the tension from city to city? Um, I can't answer this question because I know where this goes. So I'm curious what the kind of first time reader is, is thinking about. Yeah, at the at the uh, fear of, of mixing metaphors, it does feel like dominoes here, right? It does yeah. feel like... Um, each powder keg is larger and it just feels like, yeah, if Camelin, Camelin goes, then that's going to ripple back to Whitebridge and that will ripple back to 
the first city that's name I'm forgetting. Berlon. Berlon. Um, and it will affect the two rivers. I don't think like the, the city in the heart of two rivers is going to erupt in, in fighting. But I will say, I feel pretty confident that we're not going to see that. <laughs> like, I think, I think this series has shown, like, I, I don't think Robert Jordan, at least thus far, has been interested in writing, you know, siege of ministry size battles. Um, and, you know, honestly, they're not as big in the books as they became in, in the film version. I think we joked before about Lion, Witch in the wardrobe in that regard. Yeah. Right. Um, and so I think that's, I think they're, I think our group is going to slip out of the st- city and then they're going to hear the rumors of how shit went stuff went <laughs> there it is uh, stuff went, uh, how stuff went down in Camelin and they will experience the effects of that they will find refugees from that some of these figures who don't look like they're leaving the city will leave the city I think that's much more my expectation than let's have a, a siege of uh, of Camelin around the walls I think this is my favorite episode of the show now because you have made so many inverted <laughs> Greg's probably wrong predictions that we need Oof. a theme music for. But uh, <laughs> there's been a lot of, of wild assertions about what's coming next. And I appreciate you for it, Greg. Well, uh, and, and I think that's the spirit of the end of the book, right? Fair. When you yeah. know it's book one of, of a bajillion of them, it's like, yeah, it's like you, your mind is only going to want to know what's coming next. And, and that's why, you know, again, I'm glad my darling wife picked up the next book and we'll we'll keep cruising right on uh but i think that's it for my notes yeah i think my only last thought in this section was something that i think you brought up briefly in the previous chapter but something that i think is worth noting here is that we are way out of bounds of the lord of the rings playbook right Mm -hmm. the first half of this book basically follows uh the fellowship of the ring pretty much to a t right we start in the shire there's a scary guy in a black cloak we run away a few times there's a crazy river with some old stuff the fellowship gets separated and now things are going very un Lord of the Rings, right? To the point where I read the previous chapter as much as a fairy tale as I do any kind of like traditional high fantasy Lord of the Rings style style stories. And I think it's it's really effective of Robert Jordan at this point in the series to be pulling that rug out, right? To be saying, you thought you knew what you were getting, but no, it only took me 400 pages to defy those expectations to some degree. And so I look forward to it every time. I'm like, oh, good. Now we're getting to the not Lord of the Rings section of this book. Um, I want to leave you kind of being able to do last thoughts, give us your impression on where we're at in the book, where we're going. Um, But that's kind of where I'm at at this point is we are finally now out of J.R.R. Tolkien's shadow a little bit. And so I, at this point, always start to get excited. We're now going to see Jordan's story instead of kind of the retelling of the beginning of someone else's. Uh, And you are giving me uh, exactly the same vibes. I personally, and I know this is not everybody, I got out of Last Jedi, right? Because The Last Jedi was very much, oh, this is, you, you ready for your Empire Strikes Back of this trilogy? Surprise, it's also Return of the Jedi. Yeah. And now you have no idea what's coming next. Now... I'm not going to give my personal thoughts on what ended up happening next. Uh, but I will say I am not somebody who thought they nailed the ending of that trilogy. Uh, so it seems to me that we are in surer, surer hands here, even just the fact that we're in the same hands as we move uh, out of the familiar realms of fantasy and see what really happens. Uh, I've also, I, I'll just admit, I've been thinking about your tantalizing tease uh 
maybe this was off mic last week where you suggested that Brian Sanderson, that's the right name. Brandon Sanderson. Brandon Sanderson. Uh, he's having a really hot moment and that's driving people to wheel of time. Um, and so that was really interesting to me to think about, oh, okay. You know, obviously very far from now, we get another set of hands into this story. Uh, and I'm sure at the time he's trying to do what Robert Jordan wanted to do primarily. But I was peeking around at some stuff. I'm like, oh, OK, you know, we're going to have another piece here. And, you know, again, I think I'll, I'll just say as I continue to read this fantasy series and continue to pretend I don't read other fantasy series. Uh, you know, it made me think like, Oh, well, you know, when my wife said the bookstore, be like, Oh, maybe I'll check out Brandon Sanderson. Like what's, what's, what's hot with him right now and what's going on there. So, you know, I think that all is a credit to Robert Jordan. And, and certainly I see this as the gateway drug. I've always heard it to be all right. Not turning it back over to you because we've talked too long. So we are cruising right ahead. We will be reading two chapters next week. I think in my edition, it's about 25 pages. This would be chapter 42, The Remembrance of Dreams, and chapter 43, Decisions and Apparitions. Uh, and we're looking forward to this. Uh, I think you can tell our enthusiasm is high. We're out of the, the nights. We're out of the haystacks. We're into some exciting stuff. Uh, you know, Honestly, I was just thinking in my head, I'm going to take this upstairs right now and get our, our reading done now. Uh, before we go off and hang out all weekend, uh, maybe we'll we'll uh, still get to record, even though we're, we've got some busy time ahead. There was a brief discussion of recording in the backseat of my car on the way to Rhode Island Comic Con. So it may be <laughs> a rough listen next week. We will find out. Uh, I think the only thing that I want to mention is I think probably like 10, 11 weeks ago, I said goodbye to the television show viewers. I said, you know, we are going to start going in a very different direction from where the TV show did, things that are going to look very different in the books than not. Next week, I get to say welcome back television show mm. viewers. So get ready for that if you've seen the show. It's finally time for a little reunion with things you have actually seen before. And we will get there next week through the glass columns. So ends another episode of Through the Glass Columns. We thank you for joining us and continuing with us on our quest to cover all of the Wheel of Time in our own sweet time. This podcast features original content developed by Tyler Orm and Greg Cass and is not in any way affiliated with, associated with, or condoned by the Robert Jordan Estate, Tor Fantasy, or Amazon. All content is intended for entertainment and educational purposes only. If you're enjoying this podcast, please seek out the books from your local bookshop or library and join us as we continue our journey. If you'd like to contact us to share your thoughts or give feedback, you can email us at throughtheglasscolumns at gmail.com or find us on Instagram and Twitter by searching Through the Glass Columns. Thank you once again for being part of this community. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe to the show, leave us a review wherever you're listening, and recommend this show on your social media to help us grow our community. We look forward to welcoming you back next time Through the Glass Columns.